Good morning, Providence Church. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As you know, today's our very first uh, beginning effort of reassembling in some manner. And if you're watching this, I know that you have made the wise choice to be at home today. And we very much commend and respect that. As last week, we talked about obedience to conscience before the Lord. And uh, others uh, will be congregating uh, out on the front parking lot with distance. And just an encouragement to the church family that we're watching how this virus develops and we're going to make decisions with the, the information that we have. But what's important is that the church family moves forward together as we continue to love the Lord our God and to love one another. And I pray that you feel that strength. Know that the staff is here and no matter what, which category you're in, uh, that we want to keep going forward loving the Lord and being the church in our communities. Just one quick announcement today, and that is Clothe a Kid. We've been announcing that now a few weeks. Today is the last day to sign up for that. And so you can go back uh, and watch Carla Robinson's announcement. But if you say, oh, I'd like to sponsor a kid this fall and provide clothing before they go to school, please email Dawn Garrett today, dgarrett at providencechurch.us, and we'd love to have you involved. And now I'll turn it over to Pastor Ian, who will call us to worship. of the triune God. Come thou found of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. The streams of mercy never cease. Call for swords of loudest praise. Teach me some melodies on it, sung by flaming tongues of oh, praise the name I fixed upon, name of thy redeeming Great our dead, 
Church, our series begins in the Gospel of Luke today, and we're sp focused specifically on chapter 3 with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40 in this text, and so for our responsive reading, we'll look at this text as we prepare ourselves not uh, for the Word um, and for Christ to draw near to Him, and so let's, uh, where the slides say, leader, I will read, and where it says all, let's read together. From Isaiah 40. Who will you compare me to, or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up and see, who created these? He brings out the starry host by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my claim is ignored by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Who is a God such as our God? Let's sing together. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their son. Throw it into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy. Stronger than darkness 
riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath the dead we could never afford our sins they are made his mercy Good morning, Providence. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, who uh, considered prayerfully the materials we circulated with this year's annual meeting and the ballot that's before you. Thank you to everyone who took the time to attend our virtual meetings. And I just want to invite anybody to uh, reach out to Austin, myself, or any of the elders with any questions you might have, and just encourage all of you uh, to vote. Please do vote. Uh, we have a constitutional amendment which requires a high quorum, and it's very important. Thank you for taking time to do this. Now, would you just join me uh, in prayer together this morning? Heavenly Father, you are perfect. You are holy. You've given us abundant life in Christ, and you've given us the opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. Father, we rejoice that we can be gathered here together this morning, online and in person. Thank you for this church assembled together. Father, we confess to you that this has been a trying time. At times we've been unpatient, unkind. Sometimes we've been not understanding one another, not listening. And Father, we... Uh, are here this morning to confess to you our great need. Father, we can't live this life, this Christian life, apart from you in any way, shape, or form. Your word says that apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we know that it is true. But Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, whose righteousness covers all our sins, whose unbelievable love and word of truth is all that we need. We thank you that all your promises find their yes in Jesus Christ, and we thank you so dearly for him this morning. Father, as a church, I pray that you would help us to be united, to be united and take a stand for Jesus Christ in this community. Lord, we live in an age of turmoil, 
And we just pray that you would protect our hearts, protect our minds, protect our souls. Lord, protect those who are protesting and protect those who are called to serve and protect us. Lord, protect those who fear the virus. Lord, protect those who have been too cavalier about it. Lord, protect us all. Protect the unity of our church. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father. Thank you for your spirit in us. And Lord, today, I just pray that you would bless uh, this reading of your word. Bless Austin as he preaches. May his words be exactly what your spirit has for him to say to us. Lord, touch all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls for Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you in his name. Amen. Would you now stand and turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Luke? I'll be reading this morning from the ESV, the first 20 verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with the repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. You may be seated.
Thank you, team. As you'll see, we've moved from those messages on the Psalms to a one-off last week on conscience from Paul's epistle to the Romans. And now we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Luke. Of course, we know that we believe the entirety of the Bible has been given by God for our benefit, and it's appropriate for any church family to look at uh, the different parts that God has given us in order to build us up. And today we come back to one of these Greco-Roman biographies. So the, the Bible provides for us four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while they've been tampered with by the intellectual intellectuals over the years, I think it's becoming more and more clear to those who study them that really they are the, the real impressions that Jesus left on his contemporaries. And today we turn to Luke, who was a traveling companion of St. Paul. He was a physician, and this is well attested uh, by the early church. And just want to give you a reminder uh, as to how this gospel begins. And Luke, a rather sophisticated writer, would say this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." You say, what an introduction that is. You know, some who cast the Bible say, well, that's all myth. It's all made up. I, I don't think we've read passages like that very closely. Obviously, it's a sophisticated writer. You can just tell by the prose. And what he's saying is, look, I've collected all the documents, and I've done my research. I've consulted the eyewitnesses, and I've compiled an orderly account. And Theophilus, who seems to be a patron, Luke's putting it out there, and he's saying, look, everything that you've been taught about Jesus, I want you to know it's true because I've done my homework. You know, say so this is just the process of doing good history. I mean, think of it, before any kind of media age, how do we learn about history? Well, we go to those who have written accounts, those who were there with the person who've left it in documentation. And the Bible, the record in these biographies of Jesus, not only go back further than other things we readily accept in history, but here, again, because of the amount and because of the history of the church, we have reason to believe what uh, Luke is telling us here. He's saying, look, I've done all the research and I've followed up on, from the eyewitnesses. I've, I've seen how people have uh, reacted to this Jesus, and now I'm putting forth the gospel account. Now, you're asked, uh, well, why did any read chapter 3? If you remember back to Christmas time, we read those songs, because Luke chapters 1 and 2 is where we get the Christmas story. And so we did that in December, and now we're going to pick it up with Jesus' public ministry, which he starts uh, when he's about 30 years old, as we'll see next week. Uh, so there's a little story of Jesus being 12, and now we jump forward 18 years. And this section begins not with Jesus, but with another figure, a figure who we've come to know in our Bible stories is John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, I think especially today, I prefer to call him John the Preacher. <laughs> he was a great preacher. In fact, I think if I was had one passage to say, how have I been honed as a pastor explicitly? Say, John the Baptist is the model, as we'll see in a few moments. But John the Baptist, John the preacher, is the one sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. That God knew at just the right time he would put forth his son, that Jesus would 
go into ministry, that he'd ultimately go to the cross and be raised. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, but there would have been a forerunner, a long-predicted one, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. That's the role that John the Baptist, John the preacher, plays. And as we look at this passage, I think that John, above all else, preaches a real faith, an authentic faith in Jesus. You know, so much of the time now that we have had a watered-down version of what it means to be a Christ follower, that we just live in an age of what we could call a kind of cultural hangover of a more robust believing age. Some, I've heard the sociologists call it almost like a, a cut-off flower condition, where you say you still have the vestiges of something that flourished and was lively, but it's been chopped off from its root, and that's roots, and that's where we find ourselves in this, what we call a post-Christian West that I had an eminent teacher once tell me, he said, you know, the best way to defend the Christian faith is just to explain what it is. And John the Baptist, in the section that we read today, shows us what real faith is like. You know, even the phrases Christian and Christianity, you know, in certain circles they say, well, don't talk about being a Christian or Christianity because that signals an institution and it just confuses people. You know, a lot of folks think, think that, you know, just self-identifying as a Christian means you're one. So if I say I'm one, that that's all that matters. And we say, well, that falls short, right? Because we say we can say we're a lot of things. It doesn't mean we are those things. And we also know that Christian faith is to be lived out. So it's not a mere matter of just identifying as a Christian, though important that may be. You know, others, they would say, well, maybe I'm a Christian just because of where I'm born in the world. That if you're born in India, I guess you're Hindu. And if you're born in Saudi Arabia, I guess you're Muslim. And if you're born in Northeast Ohio, you're probably Christian. That, that's good enough, isn't it? You know, I think of those world maps that have the major religions in a different color, and you say if you're just kind of lopped in with one of those sections, then does that mean that that's the faith you are? You know, others would maybe sadly define it on certain rituals. Say, well, when I could go to church, I was there every week, and I would do as the pastor said, and I, I own a Bible, and uh, I guess all those things kind of indicate I'm a Christian and nothing else. Say, does any of that really cut it as John the Baptist would preach? And I'd say, well, actually, there's something a lot more central to what it means to be a real Christ follower and to live out an authentic faith in a time where there's so much phony faith that we're called to something much higher and deeper. And John the Baptist here, you know, for being such a great preacher, I think he only really had one sermon, but it is a great sermon. And he'd have us take out a number of points, wouldn't he? The first is this. As he comes on the scene, is John makes it plain to us. He said, real faith makes much of Jesus. Real faith makes much of the Lord Jesus. You see, as I said, John the Baptist's whole job is to point to Jesus. Now we read our Bibles and maybe we don't pause, but our real world experience would tell us how incredibly rare that is. Think about how hard it is in your own life. Say sometimes it's extremely hard to give someone else the attention. Even when we were young children, we as fallen people, right, we like the center of attention. We, we like to have the focus. We like to be noticed. It's, it's kind of central to our fallen natures that we like the attention. It's so incredibly rare when people give attention to other people. Notice what others are doing and how they're more important than us. That's what the Lord Jesus would call us to, and that's what John exemplifies, that his life 
points to Jesus. Notice in verses 15 and 16. All the people around, right, are kind of listening in, say, is there some talk about the Messiah? Is the long-awaited king coming? The people were in expectation. They're all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I only baptize with water, which is symbolic of the real change that takes place. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I hope we see how amazing that is. You think of all the people coming. <laughs> You're the king. We're about to make you king. You lead us. You take the authority. We'll listen to what you do. And John says, no, you got it wrong. Say, I'm not, I'm not even close to who that is. That there's a much mightier and purer one. In fact, so low am I, John would say, that I wouldn't even be able to touch his sandal. So you know in the ancient world where they didn't have good footwear, I mean this is a real statement of humility. To say I wouldn't even be able to touch the man who's coming's feet. So much mightier and purer is he than me. It's not about me, people. It's about Jesus. He's the one who's coming. That's what John the preacher tells us. You know in another gospel, John 3.30, I say this should really be the verse that all of us would post in the morning and we think about that John the Baptist says Jesus must increase but I must decrease say what a memorable line that is that my life's to be used to magnify Jesus and I'm to decrease and how much of our lives do we get that wrong that I try so hard to increase myself to improve my own resume, to show everybody else, you know, what a great guy I am and how valuable I am. And, you know, Jesus, if he comes up, you know, maybe it's just, well, yeah, you know, kind of on the side. In other words, I'm all too inclined to allow him to decrease and allow myself to increase. Not John the Baptist. He has it right. Say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That I think of John's greatness the Lord Jesus applauds John the Baptist among all the others. The reason why John is so great is because he thought so little of himself. Not that he had low self-esteem, but he understood who Jesus was. That real faith, as John would have us see, is all about Jesus. You know, there's always those folks, again, in America, and I know we've talked about this a lot at Providence, but I think they're of the mindset, uh, something like, well, God's a nice concept. I'm not ready to get rid of God. I think there's a creator out there. I mean, you know, believing in God is the normal position, but, but why do we have to go towards Jesus? I mean, that just gets a little bit weird. Can't we, can't we just have God and not Jesus? According to many of the polls, it's, it seems like many of our fellow Americans take exactly this stance, that they're, they're theists, they believe something's out there, but they're just unsure about Jesus being anything more than a good moral example. Is this possible given with what we know from those who knew Jesus and who wrote about him and what God would disclose to us? And I would say this, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to be right with God the Father if, we, if we've ignored what he's done for us in Jesus. That in other words, it's not that I can go to God on my terms my terms to save face and say, well, this is what's acceptable in the culture, and God, I'm going to decide the terms of how I get right with you, and I just choose to accept you. Let's leave Jesus out of it and say, I don't have that choice, because what God's done is he said, look, there's one way. 
to be made right with me that I've put forth my son, the Lord Jesus. My only begotten son I've put him forth in exchange for your sinful rebellion, and he's the only one because he's my only son. And so you have a lot of lines in the Bible. I take one from Luke, but you know John's gospel is replete with this kind of language. But here's Luke 10 and verse 16. The one who hears you, Jesus says, hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, But then this, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In other words, what's Jesus saying? Look, I've been sent by the Father, by Father God, in order to reconcile his people to himself. As the only begotten son, that's the mission I've been sent on. So when people say no thanks to Jesus, they've really slammed the entire thing back into God's face. You see, friends, at least from a biblical standpoint, from the testimony of the scriptures, that it doesn't make any sense logically uh, to say yes to God, I'm really good with God, but no thanks on the Jesus. Say we don't have that choice. God has put forth Jesus, and we want to please God, we come to Jesus, because those are the terms that God has given, that it's all about him. It's impossible to think we're pleasing God while we reject his son. You know, this passage, too, includes, and I I did make a mistake in not having Denny read the last two verses, but this uh, section has one of the great Trinitarian verses of the Bible. Did you notice, if if you have your Bible, you look down at verse 22, that Jesus then is baptized by John, and we're told, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, people will say things like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really talk about the Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible. Say, when we hear that comment, we say, well, we want to point to something like Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. Say, while we don't have a fully articulated doctrine of the Trinity, which we don't have fully articulated doctrines of any point of theology, because that's what the uh, theology is, is it's taking what Scripture says and then putting it in a way where the whole scripture speaks about it. But here you say clearly that we're to understand God as a trinity, right? That God's Holy Spirit descends on the Son, and then the Father quotes Psalm 2, you are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. You see, all three persons of the trinity are working together to make it known what Jesus' mission is. And not to go too far into this, but I hope we see that all three persons of the Trinity work together. That we never want to say that one member of the Trinity is not in concert with the other, but rather they're all working together. That God planned the redemption of his people. He put forth Jesus. The Holy Spirit works it in and convicts us that they're all together. It's wrong to say, well, the Holy Spirit's kind of off doing his own thing and, and uh, you know, giving people special experiences. Rather, what the Holy Spirit does is he points people and convicts people to follow Jesus. And in verse 22, we see the entire, the members of the Trinity working together to point us to the importance of Jesus, that real faith is Trinitarian and real faith would have us come to God through Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit going to work on us, all three working together. Now, a a bit more about how Luke sets this up. You know, at the beginning of chapter 3, you say, why is he dropping all those names? 
all those names of ancient world leaders. I mean, we have Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and then Herod and, you know, Licinius, uh, a number of these individuals by, who, by the way, what we know from other sources, aren't particularly good leaders, uh, that they all seem to be rather aggressive and, and are not particularly well-liked leaders. Why does Luke set it up this way? And I think this is a great gift to us now. Say how easy it is for our eyes for our attention to be on the great world leaders. Oh, it's, it's about Caesar, isn't it? I mean, he's the leader of Rome. I mean, he was God in the Roman Empire. Is it about him? Or how about Herod the Tetrarch? I mean, he ruled the, the section where Jesus is operating you know, in Judea. Is, is Herod the guy that we're supposed to pay attention? Or how about Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman prefect? How about all these powerful individuals that are so quick to wield power? Are they the ones calling the shots? Say, no, the attention's not there, John the Baptist says. Because those folks might be good for a time to preserve order, but your hope is not in them. Your hope is in the Lord Jesus. He's the real king. You know, we American evangelicals get way too caught up in politics, in American politics. We put our hope in all the wrong places that we can get going sometimes with elections and laws, and we can get so angry, right, and post things on social media, and you just say, wow, it's as if we put our hope in the elected officials. And while we certainly want to do our civic duties and we want to uh, participate and try to do our best to get people in office that we think would, would run things the best, um, that, that's all fine. But if we get too caught up in that, say, is our hope going to be in these types of leaders? Not at all, that our hope is in Jesus, that it's all about him. And Luke got this right, and he does it so brilliantly, right? He sets it up. Now, these were the leaders in power. Take your eyes off them and behold Jesus, the real mighty one. You know, one last bit about this, um, you know, why God is so acceptable. I marvel even now how in a lot of the speeches and wherever you're at that it's perfectly acceptable uh, to talk about God. Uh, but it is the name of Jesus which we're called to proclaim, and it's the name of Jesus that we're taught to um, you know, to obey and to, to esteem. And I just want to read this to you, that this uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, the, the late Supreme Court Justice, or at least a retired Supreme Court Justice, um, talking about the removal of religion from schools, so was once asked, well, why is it okay to talk about God, um, you know, and in uh, public oaths and th things like this? And this is what she said. She says, um, presidents' prayers that include God and oaths, that include the, they, they include the word God, are okay because they serve legitimate secular purposes of solemnizing public occasions, expressing confidence in the future, and encouraging the recognition of what is worthy of appreciation in society. And she says it's what a, quote, reasonable observer would perceive. But do you, do you catch what she's saying? that it's okay in those kinds of ceremonies and oaths to evoke the name of God because that meaning of God serves secular purposes. Say, we don't agree with that at all. To say, God is the creator of everything. He's put forth Jesus. And it's the name of Jesus that we want to winsomely share. I remember as a boy watching when the Rams won the Super Bowl and you're watching those post-game uh, interviews and Kurt Warner, the quarterback of the Rams, got the microphone and he said, thank you, Jesus. And said, so my head turned. I said, that was just so unusual. Everybody talked about God. 
because God in people's minds can serve our needs. But when we bring it to Jesus, that's what real faith is about. You know, all throughout the New Testament, one of the rare things is how Paul is adamant that we proclaim him. So 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he'll say, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Say, this is real, authentic faith. Not just invoking church or God, because that's acceptable, and solemnizes secular occasions. But do I proclaim him, and not myself, but Christ, and am I his servant? So John the Baptist reminds us that we're to make Jesus great. How do you make Jesus great? Now, some here, you're saying, well, you're calling for a kind of fanaticism, you know, to go out into the streets and just proclaim, of course, uh, that's not what I think is appropriate. So the basic idea is how do we make people great? How do we make Jesus great in the eyes of people? How do we do that? So we do that by willing to say what he's done in our life when those crucial conversations come up. So you know what? The Lord Jesus has made a big difference in my life. He's forgiven me by his blood for all the rebellion that I have, for all the things that I, all the embarrassing things. He's made me whole. It's all by him and not of me. That's the kind of thing when we're in those conversations, am I willing to talk about Jesus? So John the Baptist tells us real faith makes much of Jesus. But then he'd go on, wouldn't he? Particularly verses three and verse eight. What is he saying? John the Baptist has real faith exhibits a lifestyle of repentance. Say repentance is one of those words you say, well, that's a religious word. We got to get rid of repentance. But I want you to notice that both John the preacher and Jesus come on the scene. One of the first things both of them say is that you must repent. If we follow those early sermons in Acts, again, it's right there on the apostles' lips to repent. It's central to what those who knew Jesus and Jesus himself said. So if you read Mark 1.15, Jesus comes on the scene. He says, repent, John the Baptist here in verse 3. And he went into the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Or verse 8, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That it's central to, what does repent mean then? Does it mean just doing a lot of good things in hopes that you, you, you work your way to God? A lot of people have that view. Say, no, re repentance means to really start thinking differently, to change my mind and to change direction. To say, you know, I'm going one way. I'm thinking about the world and, and all that I'm trying out there to, you know, again, impress people or achieve things for myself, you know, and you get going on that way to say, stop, I, I'm, I repent. Of, I'm going to change my thinking on what it means to, to live life. I'm going to change that way and I'm going to turn direction and go towards Jesus. That's what repentance means. It just means to make a move away from the world and towards what's true and right and good and beautiful, which is the Lord Jesus. You know, with true repentance, as we'll get later in Luke's gospel in the story of the prodigal son, true repentance, I think, always includes a couple of dimensions. So firstly, there's always an emotional dimension, that we're broken before the Lord. You know, I've known many parents whose adult children have, you know, strayed from the Lord and the church, and they'll pray a scary prayer. They'll, they'll pray something like, Lord, I pray that they feel they feel the conviction of their sin. That there's an emotional pricking of the heart to say, what I'm doing now, this is a dead end. 
and I'm an empty person. I think any Christian you talk to, it'd be interesting if you're kind of, you know, thinking about how all this works, you know a real Christian, you know, ask them about this idea of repentance and say, what was it like when you're brought under conviction? I think they'll talk a lot about emotional terms, that the path, when, when I did that, I just felt terrible that I, I was at the end of myself and I felt terrible. In addition to that emotional dimension, that there's an intellectual dimension to repentance. See, I think we, you know, can start living some way and say it might be good for a time. But sin over time, a, a sinful lifestyle and rebellion against God, it doesn't add up. We, because it just doesn't work out to say, I, 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 it's not, um, the, the way I'm going, it's just not working. I need to think differently. And that, too, is what we're called to, right? To, to repent is to say, I want to feel the weight, the conviction of my sin. I want to think differently. And then, of course, it entails an action, a volitional dimension. That if I'm feeling bad emotionally about going this way and I know intellectually going that way is wrong, then I've got to change direction. And John the Baptist preaches this repentance. Keep turning away from the world. All this people in the crowd, right? They said they're kind of doing their own thing. They're doing the, the maybe phony religion. They're going through the motions. And John the Baptist say, don't go that way. Repent. Turn towards Jesus. Come to the one who can forgive you. Stop thinking that way and think this way. That's what real faith is. And I bring up here, you'll notice in the notes, Martin Luther's, the first three of Martin Luther's 95 theses. Those famous statements that were nailed to the door in 1517 that launched the Protestant Reformation and the Reformed faith. And the first three of the 95 theses, I want you to listen to what the common theme is. The Luther would write this. The first thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Thesis two. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by clergy. In other words, it's just a motion. Thesis three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of flesh. You say, we would agree with Luther on that front. He says, real faith is a lifestyle of turning away from the world and towards Jesus. That's what real repentance is. Repentance isn't a one-off and coming to faith, important as that is. It's a lifestyle of thinking about Jesus and not thinking about ourselves. It's a daily thing. Secondly, that repentance isn't just going through the motions of, of, of uh, confessing our sins uh, to a clergyman, uh, but rather it's something that is demonstrated in the action of our lives. That's what true repentance is. And how, again, important, I can't stress this enough, think about it, how important is it if John the preacher and Jesus, the first things that they say in these biographies is for those who want to follow Jesus to repent. We've got to get that right. Elsewhere in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, says if we don't repent, we're going to perish. That everyone who's a real believer, not a phony Christian, repents of his or her sin, believes on the Lord Jesus, and recognizes in Jesus alone 
there's forgiveness of sins. You see how closely those things are all related, right? Some have tried to say, well, what's the order of these? You know, repent. We all know repentance is a gift of, of God, but, you know, what's the order of repentance and faith and forgiveness? You say, it seems to me it's a, it's a package, right? That we repent by what God does in our life. He moves first. We repent of our sin. We turn towards him. We believe on him, and we see that Jesus is the only one where there is this good news. So, again, it would seem to me that real faith that John the Baptist would have us believe real faith makes much of Jesus when we make much of Jesus then we repent and turn towards him we see in his life what we can't find anywhere else and then lastly as any good preacher ought to do is that John moves the people to action that he moves the people to action he says real faith bears good fruit you see particularly verses 10 to 14 and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do, right? He's got them. They say, okay, I've got the information, you know, repent and believe and the Messiah is the one. What, what, what do we do? And he answered them. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with the, him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more money than you're authorized to collect. And then the soldiers asked him, and he said, what shall we, well, they said, what shall we do? And he says, don't extort money by anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, all these different classes of people have heard John making much of Jesus and calling for them to turn away from their lives and, and towards Jesus. And they said, well, how practically do we do this? And John's line is, well, bear the Christ-like fruit that reflects genuine repentance and turning towards Jesus. That any of us who claim to be a real Christian, that we obey Jesus and we live in him. So I think we're to verse 11, to live generously. You know, nowadays it's popular to hear things, you know, have people say, well, you know, is Jesus a socialist? I mean, you read, read Luke 3, verse 11. I mean, whoever has two should redistribute the, you know, is, is this socialism? Let's be straight. You know, socialism is a 19th century term about the government control of the means of production. I don't think Jesus is calling for that here. He's not saying, you know what, give everything you have to Rome and allow them to redistribute things. That's far from, what, what's he saying? He's saying anyone who's a, a real follower of Jesus is to model a life of generosity. That when we have an abundance, we want to share with our brothers and sisters as God has given much by putting forth his son. So we're to give much. We're to live generously. We never extort people. That we learn contentment. We tell the truth. And the reason why John points to these practical actions is because they're the very temptations that the people who ask him would be most inclined to, they, they, they'd be the areas they'd be most inclined to, to transgress, right? That a tax collector, his specific sin that he might be tempted with is to use his position to take more money. The soldier is going to be tempted again to use his position to force people around by threats. In other words, John's saying, wherever you're at in life, think about your own life. Where are you most tempted to sin? Repent of that sin, turn towards Jesus and bear good fruit. I think the Baptist confession that we all read when we come into membership is of help here. It's in the notes. This is section 15. And as these uh, originally the 17th century theologians would write, they say, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives on account of the body of death and the motions of it, it is therefore every person's duty to repent of his or her particular known sins particularly. Say, so you catch that last line, we're all to repent 
of our particular known sins particularly. That each one of us is inclined to transgress in a different area and we're to think about how we've lived before the Lord and to confess those sins before him knowing that they're forgiven as we turn and we repent and we confess. I close with this again, John, what's he saying? He's saying real faith is going to make much of the Lord Jesus. Real faith is a lifestyle of repentance, of turning towards Jesus and away from the world. That when we do that, our actions are going to follow through. That we're going to be obedient and put the life of Jesus on display. And then I think it's appropriate in those last verses, 18 to 20, to notice that this kind of preaching that John does, this kind of life that he's calling for, costs him dearly that John was a man of great courage as he would proclaim Jesus. Now, none of us will be rounded up by the authorities or uh, likely to be intimidated, but I think it is to see that real faith comes at a cost. You know, as Plato, the non-Christian philosopher who said it's much better to suffer wrong than to commit wrong. And John the Baptist, isn't it better to be like him than like Herod? who plowed his way through life and felt a sense of entitlement and was enjoying his lofty position. But John the Baptist said, you know what, Herod, it's not about you. Don't indulge. Don't take advantage of people. Don't do that. But rather live your life for Jesus, who's mightier and purer. purer. It's all about him. Friends at Providence Church, I hope we're those that have a real faith, not a phony faith, but a real faith where we make much of Jesus We have a lifestyle of repentance where we repent of our specific sins, our particular sins particularly. And that as we mature in the Lord, as he builds us up right by his spirit, that we live lives that more and more reflect the Lord Jesus as he would have us witness here until he calls us forth. So may we be the ones who bear fruits in keeping with repentance in a real faith. I'll pray. Father, thank you very much for John the preacher. And with all the clutter that we have about what it means to be a Christian or Christianity and the geographical questions and the political involvement and the American political power, all this clutter. Help us to see in Luke 3 the clarity with which John calls the people to be prepared for Jesus. May we make much of Jesus. May we posture ourselves like John and say, you know what, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. He's the real king. It's not about other people, but it's about the Lord Jesus. And Lord, may we repent. Repent of how we've done life on our own, how we kind of plowed through, and we've forgotten. We don't think about all of our sins, let alone repent. Help us to live a lifestyle of repentance, that it's not just emotion or a quick confession, but actually it's, it's before you to confess and to pivot and to live in light of that. Help us to bear good fruit. And Lord, may many come to know you through how Providence Church loves and Uh, how we're able to be real followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Some disciples of John, uh, the preacher, John the Baptist, went to Jesus. They asked him about John, and Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's because John the Baptist knew that it was all about Jesus. He must increase and we must decrease. May that be the truth today, the call to real faith. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow and even beyond. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, honor, dominion, and authority through all the ages. Amen.
mercy and pardon and righteousness.